I just noticed looking around here that you've got red up here. You've got a red smokestack in there. That is for really a special purpose. You don't find many ways of telling people that you are rather socialistic oh. inclined. And red is their favorite color. Their flag is red. Therefore, I want to advertise that oh, fact. for sure. In a way that uh, I have very definite socialistic leanings. <laughs> and uh, I want those leanings to show even in my summer home. <laughs> I'm still in London town. That based as fuck old farmer as uh, did the Danny Nation's friends in the chat. A little guy by the name of Henry Martinson. Uh, patrons will be have been introduced to Henry this weekend. We had uh, film guy Matthew on to talk about a documentary, uh, the first in a uh, trilogy on the North Dakota uh, Nonpartisan League. And uh, that was Henry Martinson, who was one of the goats of uh, uh, of the organizing movement. Uh, it's had a lot of time in uh, North Dakota labor movement, <clears throat> lived nearly a hundred years. Uh, and we will be looking more at Henry specifically with the uh, other two installments of the uh, Prairie Fire documentary. These are directed by John Hansen and Rob Nilsson in 1978 to 1980 period about the North Dakota uh, farm labor movement, uh, which fed into what we'll be talking about with tonight's guest, Anders Lee. And my computer's freaking out a little bit, and I'm the only host, so uh, give me some feedback in the chat if, if something uh, happens technically. But uh, as long as we're here, Anders uh, has a great piece in Racket uh, magazine. This is from, I believe, a while ago, uh, March 27th, 2023, this year. Um, how Hubert H. Humphrey purged DFL of socialists. That is uh, in the link below. Before we get to Anders, you know, usually David uh, does the uh, econ monologues, but there's something that's I've been seeing on the timeline a little bit, and I think I can help. Let's take from uh, most objectionable to least objectionable. Uh, assuming I'm still having a connection here. Um, crap, let me make sure. Are we still good? Are we live on a Twitch too, folks? Uh, I just got an error message. Um, okay, well, it looks like we're doing fine. Sorry, uh, that'll be the last time I get anxious about that until uh, you guys tell me to. But so, from objection, most objectionable to least objectionable, here is uh, Derek Thompson. Now, Derek Thompson isn't a bad guy. He's not somebody who we're probably going to invite on, say, Majority Report. Um, but he, he's like a sort of standard liberal magazine writer. And he had this to say on the state of the economy. Uh, the U.S. has the fastest growth rate of any G7 country. And the U.S. has the lowest annual inflation of any G7 country. And Americans hate it. And continues to charge president wants voters to see wants voters to see some charts as opposed to like, you know, their bank accounts. But anyway, um, here's what Thompson says. Uh, as for exclamations, real wages declined in 2021, 2022. Uh, there's some evidence uh, recovering in 2023. We'll get to that. 
Uh, also, consumer sentiment is all negative polarization now. So Republicans tell posters they're living through the apocalypse. But Republicans would disapprove of Biden either way. Like if he's if his if his poll numbers are so bad, it means Democrats aren't feeling that too. But anyway, Americans are just in a bad mood. Now, there's a piece I saw right before going live that uh, kind of gets to. Uh, I, I, well, I, I'll be honest. I haven't read this. I haven't read this uh, this piece here by Eric Levitz. Um, this framing of it by Jonathan Chait doesn't inspire a whole lot of confidence, but I think I kind of will get, I think I know what he's getting at. But anyway, even after accounting for inflation, the real hourly wage in the U.S. is now nearly 2% higher than it was before the pandemic. Eric Levitz on the mystery of Biden's terrible approval ratings. Now, what they're reacting to is I is what Harold Meyerson is talking about in this. Now, Harold Meyerson, I think, is good. I think the prospect is good. This piece has something, a lot of value, or there's something to take out of this piece, even though I find it kind of annoying for the same reasons I find those other people who are like, well, there's this small metric that we're measuring, wage growth, I guess, not small metric, but why isn't everybody happy? And, you know, that we should know, I believe that uh, as uh, Meyerson does in this piece, um, specifically like what the economy has done regarding the like quit rate, for instance, the, the, the quiet quitting and also the uh, people doesn't want to work anymore, that whole dynamic, what that actually meant uh, and what and how that was facilitated by government policy. And I don't think that should be lost. That's not me trying to apologize for Joe Biden saying that. I think there is a huge effort to try to, not let people uh, realize what the government did that was good during the pandemic and make it seem like it was all just some dystopian uh, fight, uh, fight for rights. But ultimately, the real thing is like, guys, okay, so your wages, have, wages for the um, uh, lowest income has gone up a little bit. Look at this uh, thread here pointed out by, or this research pointed out by another DSA uh, member here, Renee on uh, Twitter. Supply of rental units, affordable and lower income rentals, uh, affordable to lower and middle income renters fell by 3.9 millions over the last decade according to Harvard JCS. So it's nice to get a little bit of a raise, but if we just click through this, oh, I, I need to share this actual thing. It won't follow you. Um, if we actually click through this, it's fucking awful <laughs> like look at all these uh, the the lowest income just the the amount of units available to people so it's like yeah you might have more walking around money maybe that's true but this reminds me of a joke we made uh on the michael brooks show live show uh about ubi and if you do not take the uh hooks that rentiers have out of people with regards to these essentials like rent a few, uh, like some, some like a universal basic income that can help that I don't want to say that's not like relieving stress on people, but guys, if you can't rent, what do we think we're doing here? And I think like Meyerson is the least objectionable, but like when I see like national magazine writers who I imagine earn six figures talking about how like, oh, wages have gone up on these metrics, like that's good. But look at the rest of it before you act so perplexed uh, is, is all I want to say about that. Uh, with that, I want to welcome our guest uh, for this evening, Anders Lee. Anders, uh, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Hey, Anders Lee here. Thanks, Matt, for having me on. Appreciate it. Anders, uh, 
apologize for my pronunciation. That's oh, all right. No, it's my, uh, my stupid catchphrase that I always say. <laughs> uh, Anders is a co-host of Pod Damn America and also the Paid Protest Podcast, formerly of Redaction Night. Author of this piece, which I have linked in the show notes here, uh, How Hubert Humphrey Purged the DFL of Socialists. And uh, let me down. I, I'll be honest, uh, uh, Anders, I have focused a little bit more on the North Dakota side of things. Uh, and so I appreciated the opportunity both to read your piece and also the documentary that you have sent me, which I also linked to. Um, but the DFL is something people probably hear uh, first on like the news mm -hmm. and maybe if they go to vote and probably their eyes gloss over. It's just something on paper now. But if you overheard somebody uh, at a bar, say in St. Paul, talk about the DFL, what is the DFL? What would you try to say to maybe excavate a little bit of radical history to them? Yes. Yeah. A lot of people in Minnesota, they're just two extra letters that don't stand for anything. Uh, my first exposure to it was the booth at the state fair, um, but it stands for Democratic Farmer Labor Party because there used to be a, a another party called the Farmer Labor Party in, in Minnesota um, that was far more powerful and prestigious than the Democrats. And uh, eventually in 1944, they had to merge and uh, to this day, they are still uh, combined, at least on paper. They are still technically uh, the same party. It's a merged party. There's no singular Democratic Party in Minnesota. Um, and there's a long history of, of social struggle uh, within, the, within that, those two, two words in the, in the title, farmer labor. I'm sorry, I can't. Sorry, I was muted. Um, I, that was my bad. Here is uh, just a short clip, um, and then we'll get into uh, some of the history here. But what I find interesting also is uh, Stadeberg, I think her name is, well, one mm -hmm. of the early organizers, female, like women all over organizing this. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, let me just play this clip here and we'll come back. In 1924, Mahoney and Stagerberg brought together a coalition unique in the history of American politics. More than a political party, the Farmer Labor Association was the grassroots core of the movement designed to educate, organize, and represent the two great producing classes, the farmers and the workers. The association, through its member organizations and local clubs, developed platforms reflecting farmers and workers' interests. Then they made sure their elected farmer hey, labor party Oops, sorry, uh, my uh, screen capture uh, messed that up. But um, you kind of get the gist there. And what I find fascinating about this is I had sort of, I think, maybe um, assumed that there was more independence between the uh, farm labor and the NPL, which is a nonpartisan league in North Dakota. But actually, the uh, this is a, a case of the farmers in North Dakota uh, starting this, the nonpartisan league, which again, we'll get into. We got into a little bit for patrons on Sunday. We'll get into in the post game tonight. But the farmers saying, you know, we're tired of getting screwed over and that inspiring uh, farmers in Minnesota, like basically coming North Dakota as a North Dakota. And I know that one of the last places uh, sort of taken over by Uncle Sam uh, in the continuous United States and last to be settled. But it's like that sort of uh, uh, populist energy coming back and then crashing through the farmers. And then in Minnesota, you have a different makeup. You have the more industrial workers as well. Yeah. Uh, so beginning in the, the early 20th century, the Midwest, the Plain States are a hotbed 
of uh, socialist activism, especially before the, the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, in North Dakota in particular, though, there's some there is a, a vibrant and active socialist party, but they're having trouble establishing a foothold because a lot of farmers uh, feel alienated from the socialist struggle um, because, as you say, it's an industrial struggle primarily. But uh, when it comes down to it, their interests are really aligned because um, capitalism it just doesn't work for uh even conservative farmers, they find that this is just a very unstable system and they need some uh, sort of support. And uh, the there's, I'm sure you've covered A.C. Townley, brilliant organizer who is able to establish the Nonpartisan League. Uh, I believe at first it's like the Farmers Nonpartisan League with the direct mission of uh, organizing farmers and, and you know, the, not necessarily explicitly uh, in a socialist way, but um, they're able to really uh, take control of North Dakota's government and establish a, a state bank, straight state grain elevator. Um, and people in Minnesota see that. And uh, they, I believe in the 19 teens, they try to expand um, east to Minnesota. They, they started national headquarters in St. Paul and they are really there. The nonpartisan league is really present uh, during a uh, trolley car strike in Minneapolis. And they're really one of the only formal organizations that's supporting these workers. And so they're able to really establish a foothold and start to think about um, alternatives to the two-party system. Because at this point in North Dakota, they've used the Republican ballot line, which um, right. is so fascinating in retrospect. Uh, and they're, they're starting to do the same thing in Minnesota. And they think, well, let's just do both parties. Let's take over both major parties. But the thing is, at that point in Minnesota, the Democratic Party is is like nothing. It's they had, I think, one governor in the early 20th century, but they are just a real dearth of a party. They're like the Green Party almost today. Right. Uh, so they say, let's let's just do our own thing. It's going to be uh, easier that way. And we, we can have a, a clear program that we can put forth to to farmers and laborers. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to jump the gun too much, but the success of FDR kind of doomed um, the farmer labor movement. I mean, well, let's let's save that for a little bit later. That sure. state bank in uh, North Dakota uh, paid for me to study abroad in uh, London. Oh, wow. Uh, I actually took my uh, a loan out from that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, yeah, uh, AC Townley, very interesting guy uh, for the Nonpartisan League. Yeah, like you said, like a lot of the early organizers were socialists uh, trying to get traction. And facing a similar problem that we all butt our heads up incessantly today, which is the two-party structure and the difficulty of breaking out of that. And so the Nonpartisan League itself, that name tells you, like, we're going to run on whichever, um, which, in whichever primaries, on whichever ballot lines we can get on. We don't really care because none of these people are coming for us. And North Dakota had that openness because there was already a history of basically governors being installed uh, representatives of sort of the financial interests in Minnesota. It's like, we can't, we a sort of early uh, thing loosened up to create those open primaries. And like you said, like initially they started off with having more success on the Republican ticket in North Dakota as well. And ultimately basically becoming a joint uh, operation with the democratic party and getting less and less radical. Right. Uh, yeah. Which is, I, I think, a really important, you know, th thing to still reflect on, though, for today when we have uh, discussions about the party question is that America has a very uh, strange system where we don't really have uh, real parties in the, the European sense. And this is a really great example, uh, I think, more so nonpartisan league of just 
using the ballot line uh, and there's really nothing they can do about it. Um, you can yeah. run on whatever platform you want and there's no repercussions as there would be in Britain or other countries. Um, and, you know, I, I often think that these groups like no labels today should uh, someone should try to maybe co-op them by by trying to bring the nonpartisan league back and maybe bring on some some uh, some confused moderates to get some some funding. But we'll see. I've always I've always thought Nathan Robinson was smart with the naming of current affairs. And like, mm -hmm. you know, we have we have a show like Left Reckoning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I appreciate <laughs> that because there's a, like a whole bunch of different meanings you can. Right. But it also like puts the name on the tin a little bit more than like, you know, uh, when, like all these shows, like, I mean, when we were doing the Michael Brooks show, names don't have, people are willing to give a person a shot before they're willing to give an ideology a shot. Um, so I think it's interesting the lessons that they learn to uh, get accepted. And, you know, Townley himself driving actually to, um, the Model T was a big part of his organizing, yeah. basically driving uh, from farm to farm and talking to folks, having a sales mentality. Actually, I, it reminded me, like, if, I, if we have any sales uh folks in the left reckoning audience like <laughs> your skills can come into in handy like i've done some phone banking and stuff my dad's a salesman i am allergic to that sort of thing but like, uh, yeah the idea of applying those skills to organize folks which is literally what these guys did is i think really inspiring yeah for i mean i would love someone to help uh us pitch pod damn america to some uh patriotic um folks out there in the heartland but no i know what you mean with the the sales thing, it's funny, I've had uh, two different canvas types of canvassing jobs, one for nonprofits, just bugging people in the street, which is way worse for some reason than just going to people's doors and asking them, like, will you support this cause or this this candidate? It's it yeah, is yeah. interesting how much like people can be driven and motivated, even shy people, Midwestern folk like ourselves uh, can be driven by, you know, a political uh, program. Right. Um, now, so uh, the Nonpartisan League has some big success that the the Red Scare that follows, uh, you know, Bolshevik Revolution and uh, and World War One really um, I mean, it. I think it I'd be curious your perspective. I mean, here's actually some documentary we'll play. I mean, it completely really hurt the North Dakota um, uh, uh, um, Nonpartisan League. League organizing took place during the height of U.S. involvement in World War I. The Republican administration, aided by the Home Guard and Main Street Patriots, carried on a campaign of harassment, branding both farm and labor militants as disloyal and jailing leaders for sedition. There were people hung in effigy and there were actual people tarred and feathered. It was a, a violent campaign. In 1917, the legislature set up a special Minnesota commission of public safety to suppress dissent. Members of the Public Safety Commission who directed it were mostly corporate leaders from Minneapolis. They saw this as an opportunity to extend their power across the state and deal with a number of the challenges to their power in Minneapolis through violating what today we would see as basic civil liberties. John F. McGee became de facto leader of the commission that targeted groups well beyond opponents of the war. The League worker is a traitor. Where we made our mistake is in not establishing a firing squad in the first days of the war. We should now get busy and have that firing squad working overtime. The disloyal element in Minnesota is largely among the German and Swedish people. The Public Safety Commission, in trying to take care of its perceived enemies across the state, that brings farmers and laborers together. They all experience this repression. That really did cause people to, to think about where their political uh, loyalties really ought to lie and who's going to be on their side. Strong head. 
thought that was a fascinating uh, section there. Um, yeah, talk about the, the the Red Scare moment. Yeah, well, you know, when I think about World War One in, in the U.S., I feel like the term uh, manufacturing consent uh, could probably best be there, which I think maybe is even the, the genesis from uh, the guy who coined it. But uh, the the amount of sentiment against the war is really overwhelming going into 1917. I think the most popular song in the country in 1916 is I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. And all of a sudden you just have this rash of laws and just power grabs on federal, state and local governments to uh, crush dissent against the war. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things where it's like the, the propaganda is very, very heavy. But uh, and I feel like people don't always uh, remember this point, um, which is, you know, we, part and parcel of, of the manufacturing consent thesis. It, propaganda is not always 100 percent effective. Uh, it doesn't always work on everybody. It, it often um, doesn't work very well at all. Uh, and so you have, you know, even during and after the war, especially after the war, a lot of Americans very upset about what just uh, transpired. Um, and you have, you know, the only response of uh, the government is to just call people Reds or, or German sympathizers, um, which does start to have more of an effect uh, getting into the, the 20s um, when you have the, the Palmer raids where um, there are, you know, there's a, a bombing and on Wall Street and just uh, I believe thousands of homes are raided by federal agents and people are persecuted and put in jail and just the, you know, the all these things we talk about today are starting, I guess, during the Bush administration about the Constitution uh, being torn apart and all this stuff like it, it, this is not a new precedent like America has gone through phases of this uh, many times before. And I think World War One is a really stark uh, example. Yeah, that's such a key point. Like, the, there's a way we remember the McCarthy era as if, like, that was the one time that we did that. And right. it actually, it flares up in the 1870s and 1880s, definitely in the 19-teens, and, of course, in the in the 1950s. It's something that could easily happen again. I mean, to the extent that it isn't happening sort of on a slow boil uh, at all times uh, and then, you know, um, comes over. Um, now, uh, there's this other piece here, um, on the industrial sort of workers. And there's, like you said, like that, um, the initial, actually, I, uh, no, I can't, I wish I, I didn't mess that clip up unless I got it. Um, that clip where the, the, the farmers in North Dakota, uh, oh, here, actually, let me play this one. Here's another from this documentary, which I do want to cite. It's, it's, it's linked in the description. The movement's focus on economic issues brought people together across powerful racial and ethnic divides. African-American farmers became active members of the League. Labor and civil rights leader Nellie Stone Johnson was born to William Allen, a farmer, and Gladys Allen, a teacher in 1905. She grew up on farms in Minnesota's Dakota and Pine Counties. My dad was a member of the Nonpartisan League. I was very familiar with the League and read many of the papers. I was 13 doing the distribution of literature to the farmers. I just propped the material up on the horse's saddle horn so I could read it. Nonpartisan Lee Gaines inspired organizing among farmers in northwestern Minnesota and beyond. Their goals and successes attracted workers in cities too, despite traditional tension between urban labor and rural farmers. What brings these two groups together is a streetcar strike that occurs in St. Paul in 1917. When no one else stood with Minneapolis and St. Paul workers during the streetcar strike, the nonpartisan league stood behind them, donated funds, 
and spoke out on their behalf, and they began to see that their interests were really not so different after all. As a mark. Yeah, I mean, really like inspiring stuff and the type of thing where it's like, I wish maybe this was taught. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we got taught Lewis and Clark maybe every single year. <laughs> That's great. Um, but, you know. Right. I mean, Minnesota, it's hard because you have so many uh, strange, like Jesse Ventura was the governor there. So it's, it's hard not to get lost in that or just it, it's a I mean, like every state, there's a, a very rich history. But, uh, yeah, I think this is kind of um, kept from kids in a way, uh, mm-hmm. not in a like, you know, conspiratorial way. But um, it does. I think the way you learn about history in Minnesota is just kind of like, oh, that's just the Democratic Party. And yeah, I guess they were like two things, but it's not really seen as this distinct formation uh, that existed for you know a few decades and was uh, incredibly powerful. It's just kind of seen as like a- another analog for the Democratic Party. Yeah. And I love that. Like, Nellie Allen, um, I-, I appreciate that documentary because like, I-, I think Allen's been mentioned in books I've read, but to see pictures and to see you know, um, hear her words, not her actual voice, but, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, like she's tailor made for, um, a story. Like, I, like I didn't understand North Dakota's diversity like that. I'll mm-hmm. just confess it. Right. Like a little black girl, uh, carrying, uh, socialist literature to farmers is the type of image that like I would invent, like yeah. if I was trying to propagandize, if like Pixar gave me a contract and then they'd be like, that's not believable. Right. But there's a real, like, those are the real stories of this. And like, and we have all this, uh, this sort of like, um, ang- anxiety about race and how do we come together? It's like, well, we've done this before. Right. Right. Like, and, and yeah, I mean, I think it's just such a great, uh, lesson. Right. Which is, you know, of course, not to say that uh, she and other people didn't face uh, racism in, in at this time. Uh, right. But uh, that was a uh, key part of the FLP's uh, platform was civil rights. And I think uh, later it was kind of that was ended up being a way in which the Democrats uh, tried to appeal. Uh, that was like one sort of progressive uh, agenda item they were willing to take up. And I think that has to do with the, the FLP's early uh, advocacy for civil rights. Yeah. And there, there's a lot of things like, I, I mean, the role of women in both these movements, like to the point of, uh, you could, I mean, you could tell like the suffragette movement and that sort of stuff was yeah. really in the air because uh, I think the, I think it was farmer labor movement had a, a requirement for like one woman for every two men on, mm-hmm. on uh, boards like that. Um, yeah. Uh, fascinating stuff. Um, uh, let's move a little bit into the uh, height of the 30s. Uh, and and this got another clip from this documentary here about the uh, Hormel uh, Chile strike, uh, which I, again, another piece of history that I'm unaware of. Yeah, I went to work at Hormel's over here in 28, down at Austin. I run a gang there at Hormel's for five years. The work had become short weeks, cut pay, and here comes the form. The, uh, not this guy's voice, but the first voice you're hearing is a Frank Ellis, who's a, the meatpacking organizer. To insist that you sign a card uh, saying that you'll allow them to take money out of your pay uh, to go to the community chest. And as the story is told, one of the workers said, uh, they expect us to help the poor people. Well, we are the poor people. Uh, they started a sit-down strike and they occupied the plant. This was in November of 1933. It was the nation's first sit-down strike. Jay Hormel and other business leaders had been lobbying for Governor Olson to send the National Guard to Austin to open up the plant, citing chaos in the streets. Instead, Olson went to Austin to see the situation for himself. 
He saw disciplined, peaceful pickets surrounding the plant. He met with both sides at the Fox Hotel and mediated an end to the strike. And at the end of three days, Jay Hormel gave in. And that union negotiated one of the most remarkable union contracts ever. They're going to get a stable wage every week, and they can't be laid off for 52 weeks. Needless to say, workers around the state of Minnesota and workers around the upper Midwest heard about this and were inspired by this. This was the breakthrough. And we started in organizing cooks, waiters, waitresses, bartenders, barmaids, and automobile workers and truck drivers and what have you. And we organized under the independent union of all workers. And we got them organized solid. And when we were once organized, we were the power. We're gonna roll. Yeah. Um, I mean, you hear about that, uh, you know, one of the best contracts ever. And you, that's one, both inspiring. And two, you realize, oh, capitalists, like, learn from that as well. Right. Yeah, because you have around this time uh, what, what historians call welfare capitalism in places like West Virginia, where there's been really militant uh, uprisings. And they kind of realize, like, I guess we got to throw them a bone here and there. So you have in other places, company towns that are actually a little more generous than we're used to seeing. Um, but yeah, in, in Minnesota, especially, I think the ruling class is really on watch. They're very keenly aware of this growing movement and uh, they do what they can to, to compromise with it. That's definitely true. What uh, what's your take on Frank Olson? You know, he has the a famous quote. Uh, was it at the convention or, or to the legislature saying, "I'm not a liberal. I'll work with them." Um, yeah. And uh, you know, I, yeah. What's uh, what's your take on Frank? Uh, Floyd Olson. Yeah. He Floyd. So Floyd. He. Uh, it's he's a very complex figure. Um, my main takeaway would be that he's an extremely shrewd politician. Uh, very aware of um, his political capital. Uh, very aware of all the different political factions within the state, which is ever, runs a gamut from uh, communists, Stalinists, Trotskyists, uh, and then on the right, the, the Citizens Alliance, which is a an organization founded in the early 20th century, which is basically a, a business union, which um, starts to really militarize. Um, he is a, a Hennepin County attorney at first. He takes over um, as the former Labor Party's gubernatorial nominee in 1924 when uh, Charles Lindbergh Sr. dies. Um, and he loses the 24 election quite narrowly. Uh, at that point, there are two farmer labor senators, but really the main prize is the, the governor's mansion. And he says, give me six years. We're going to do this in six years. And that prediction comes true, elected in 1930. Um, and he's a, a compromiser. He, there are certain things that he um, doesn't bite on at first, he is uh, he's able to get certain things taken out of the platform that he thinks will um, prevent the FLP from getting into power. Um, that's like recognition of the Soviet Union, uh, nationalization of industry, but also something I found really interesting, uh, which at the time is a crazy radical idea. Today, it's a very humdrum phenomenon because where he has that but at the time that was like a very radical kooky thing to propose uh so he holds off on that stuff um in office he's able to negotiate uh, like the hormel strike as you just mentioned there's a farm foreclosure uh that he enacts um and he also uh eventually in that the convention you mentioned in 1934 
then he starts to um, throw his weight around a little and he says, he pronounces, I am a radical, I'm not a liberal. Uh, and they, they go balls to the wall on the platform. Um, there is some speculation, however, and this really speaks to the phenomenon of Floyd Olson, that that was a political calculation because he had, um, I, I guess, enemies or people he uh, was a little wary of on the left of the party because this was a pretty open party at that point. There was a paper ban on, on communists uh, until 1936, but there were still, uh, it was, you know, very difficult to enforce, very loosely enforced. Um, so they let communists into the fold and he was aware of that. And so by saying that, and it's hard to know, you know, what the truth is, but that was kind of a calculation to like get to prevent some of those more radical elements from getting elected into the legislature so he could govern uh, more from the center. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. Uh, you know, I try. I don't want to move too far off that topic. I mean, that, that but I do want to get you mentioned Charles Lindbergh. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, talk for those who don't know who Charles Lindbergh is, you know, maybe a brief uh, uh, intro. But yeah, how did his sort of arc, you know, I, I appreciate the anti-war uh, uh, um, uh, sentiment. Uh, not up to the point where you're taking pictures with Goering, yeah. <laughs> um, right? <laughs> like, I think you got to find some sort of happy medium there. But yeah, talk about Charles Lindbergh. Yeah, well, uh, Charles Lindbergh Sr. was a congressman from Minnesota uh, started, starting in the early 20th century. He was a progressive Republican. He endorses uh, Roosevelt in 1912, who runs a uh, third party, um, but then is very much opposed to, to Roosevelt when it comes to the war. He's a staunch isolationist, very against war with Germany. Uh, and then he is involved in the founding of the Farmer Labor Party, um, but he dies in 1924. And then uh, Charles Lindbergh Jr. is kind of like all just the bad stuff about Sr. Like uh, he, um, you know, it, it's, I don't, I wouldn't say Sr. was as explicitly anti-Semitic, but uh, Junior certainly is. And, you know, he's an aviator, for those who don't know, flew across the Atlantic, right. um, but uh, really made had some strange bedfellows and was advocating peace with, with Germany, um, which, you know, I'm sure we'll get to this, but it, it, very odd time in retrospect, uh, the anti-World War II movement, because um, there's a lot of um, leftists, a lot of communists who are against war um, for all the routine, usually correct reasons. Um, but in this one instance, they happen to be way off and uh, they are making strange bedfellows with, with someone like Charles Lindbergh, who I think is a, uh, I think it's fair to call him a fascist. And um, yeah, I would recommend the plot against America, the, the book, but also the, the series about him in, you know, an alternate history of where he gets elected president. It's not, not good news for, for Jewish Americans. And probably not helpful to try to like maintain because Townley didn't turn out. I think he ended in, yeah. in, in anti-communism, like not super helpful. Henry Martinson, the subject of the documentaries uh, I'm going to be watching in the post game, he's a much better figure for romanticizing uh, mm -hmm. these movements. Um, but I imagine like the Lindbergh thing, he's probably a big blot that makes it difficult to try to be like, oh, well, they had Lindbergh with them. He was a Nazi, right? Yeah. Uh, you'd be like for the Farmer Labor Party? Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a very uh, nebulous um, political situation at the time, you know, uh, even more so, you know, almost as much as today, uh, because the FLP, it has um, a lot of 
people who are isolationist uh, and they get involved in politics just because they're anti-war. And that includes people who are um, anti-Semites and xenophobes. And maybe they, you know, have some populist economic ideas, yeah. but that's their animating uh, factor in their politics is is hatred in many cases. Um, and so that's something the FLP is also contending with, because you have communists on the left, and then you also have um, some anti-Semitism. There's a, uh, a lieutenant, Floyd Olson's lieutenant governor, who ends up briefly becoming governor when he dies, Yelmar Peterson, uh, ends up running a very anti-Semitic, two very anti-Semitic uh, primaries against Elmer Benson, who, who uh, ends up being governor after Olson. Um, so it, you know, it was, uh, that was definitely a, a presence in American politics at large, but in the FLP as well. Yeah. What, uh, what's your take on the uh, place of cooperatives here? You know, the, the documentary we're playing from uh, shows both the, the sort of timber workers uh, getting pissed about getting screwed over by like company stores and stuff like that. And then you have, we already mentioned like the cooperative grain elevators uh, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Uh, talk about cooperatives. Uh, well, yeah, Minnesota is to this day, I think, as the most cooperative businesses out of any uh, state in the country. And uh, that was certainly true at this time. Um, farmers uh, were very attracted to the cooperative model because, you know, as we're talking about, capital is a very unstable system. Uh, so this was a way of uh, balancing against that. And it just made more sense if you're a farmer. So you have a lot of people who are sort of uh, conservative, isolationist uh farmers who end up voting for the FLP and then taking play, part in, in these cooperatives. And uh, a big there's a big section of the Farmer Labor Party that really wanted to expand that model to the entire economy into something called cooperative, cooperativism, uh, kind of a mouthful to say. Um, and in my opinion, and this is, you know, not everyone would agree with this, I think it's, it's basically socialism, uh, just a series of um, democratically run economic enterprises and also a, a state uh, that runs uh, certain facilities and uh, businesses as well um, and, you know, takes things out of the marketplace, too. Um, they they kind of avoided the, the term socialism in a lot of cases for, you know, xenophobic reasons, but also uh, for what we mentioned earlier, just, you know, if you're appealing to agrarians, you. Oh, did I crash? Nope, you're still here. Oh, OK, sorry, my computer's acting weird. Uh, if you're, you're appealing to agrarians, then um, socialism was seen as like a very urban phenomenon. So cooperativism was more of a politically shrewd term to use. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really um, uh, fascinating. It's 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 because like I uh, there's some co-ops in North Dakota to um, electric co-ops, I believe. Uh, um, but you know, it, they weren't politicized. Like when I would mm -hmm. hear about them, it wasn't as if it was like, oh, this is actually something it, it, to the extent that you understood there was a difference between that and any other kind of business. It wasn't like you were politically educated about it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you lived in the Twin Cities for a while, right? Uh, no, never really in Twin oh, Cities. Okay. Fargo, Fargo Moorhead. Okay. Right? Gotcha. Uh, in the Twin Cities, there's a ton of food co-ops uh, that are just, they just kind of seem like hippie, dippy grocery stores. Um, and, you know, in some respects that's, that's not inaccurate, uh, but they're, you know, every, all the members pay, uh, an extra fee every time they, they buy something. My parents are members of Mississippi Market, shout out. And uh, you get like a little dividend every year. Um, uh, but it's it's funny, there's a whole 
bizarre, uh, fascinating, um, and rich history there too in, th in the Twin Cities with the uh, co-op wars of the 1970s, where you had some of these same issues coming to the fore, where you, you there were uh, Maoists and third worldists who wanted to run co-ops in, in their way, where they were like, let's sell junk food, that's what the masses want. And then the hippies, more of the greens who were like, no, we need health food. And, you know, there was, all the while there was like a traditional, um, black American sort of community of food co-ops in North Minneapolis that they were, you know, uh, talking over. Uh, but that's just, yeah, that's a really part and parcel of Minnesota and uh, fascinating history as well. Uh, one final clip I want to play. And I think you mentioned this in the foreclosure, uh, the foreclosure pause, but mm -hmm. this is another sort of radical little moment. Uh, there's a lot of talk over different sorts of like types of nonviolence and things like that. And, I think like it's all good for um, maybe streamers to hypothesize about this sort of stuff, but I'd prefer maybe just to like show actual history. So here's uh, here's one of these uh, instances. So creditors began negotiating with the association instead of forcing families off their land. It was one thing to challenge the local sheriff's power, quite another to defy federal authorities as the Farm Holiday Association did in Montevideo. It was a day perfect for thrashing. But within a radius of 20 miles around Montevideo, there wasn't a thrashing rig going. There was a scheduled foreclosure sale, and they, they shut down the thrashing in there. I just want to say, God bless the makers of this documentary for getting guys like that on camera to share <laughs> this. Like, I feel, I feel the exact same way about that guy sharing this story as you know those foot that footage from like the twenties of like this guy that saw the Civil War mm -hmm. talking to this. Like, I feel the exact same way. And I, I appreciate yeah. his uh, energy for uh, giving it to us. And they, they shut down the thrashing, and everybody went to town. Crowded. The town was full of people as far as South Dakota, Iowa, North Dakota, and. And the poor U.S. Marshal, <laughs> actually, I felt sorry for him. He had a bodyguard. He said, I'm here with the judge's order in my pocket, and he patted his gun when someone hit the Marshal. I turned him around and I told him, there's about 6,000 of us here. You don't need to do that. The Marshal called the federal judge. The judge said, you can't do this. It's illegal. Harry Hogland says, we understand that, but we're doing it. They stopped the foreclosure. Just after that gathering, John Bush got a call from Governor Olson. Governor Olson told me he had a call from the president. He called me to tell me specifically. He knows you and he thinks you're doing a tremendous job, but you can't buck the federal government. You're going to spend the rest of your life in the pen. Well, I said, now, Floyd, up till now, we've hurt no one. You'll put me in the pen if it takes 10,000, 100,000. It takes I don't know how many. I'm not going to stay there. If you want a civil war, if that's what you're aiming for, that's the way you'll get it. Instead of arrests, the militant, unified actions of the Association on Farms and in a mass rally at the Minnesota Capitol gained a state foreclosure moratorium. And at the urging of President Roosevelt, Congress passed a law providing subsidies to farmers in exchange for cutting production. I mean... Also, shout out to the filmmakers for that killer fiddle music. All these yes. uh, these musical bangers we get from this this doc. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I was reading today the Floyd Olson uh, issued that 
uh, moratorium uh, with really, really tenuous legal ground. Like that was not something it was clear that a governor could do. Uh, but because he was so had such a keen sense of like what he could get away with or not get away with, uh, he seized the moment and the legislature, which included a lot of conservative Republicans, had their backs against the wall. So they just had to, you know, retroactively say, OK, yeah, fine. Moratorium on farm foreclosures. I mean, fascinating, you know, I think uh, engagement with uh, and victory over the uh, FDR there, too. Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe that can move us to like the final uh, part that, again, I'll uh, post your uh uh, article for racket here um and what is racket I, I i've seen it around but i i've never done like the about page uh, inspection on it so if you want to uh introduce that to me and everybody else in the audience too sure yeah uh well in the tradition of uh minnesota cooperatives it's actually a uh, cooperatively run and owned uh publication based in the twin cities and it was founded by uh a group of people, including my buddy Jay Bowler, who used to write for City Pages, um, which was a weekly paper in the Twin Cities, which uh, unfortunately it was a great, great publication. Uh, unfortunately, that folded a couple of years ago. So the some of the writers uh, took it upon themselves to, to start to start this. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, so Hubert H. Humphrey. Um, you know, I recently mentioned Humphrey uh, as not really himself, but the fact that I think it's significant that the Metrodome used to be called yeah. the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome. And we don't do that anymore for uh, uh, political leaders. And maybe that's a good thing, but <laughs> I think it's a little bit of a dystopia that's crypto.com and maybe not like, yeah. but anyway, Hubert Humphrey's not uh, a hero or someone we should uh, support. I didn't know that, uh, you know, I, I knew him as a, sort of a basic, you know, Democrat um, mm-hmm. that wanted to be president, but his actions uh, leading to well, talk about the merging of the parties and uh, and then Humphrey. Yeah, so um, Olson dies in thirty six, uh, and that's after the thirty four truckers strike, um, where he ends up calling in the National Guard, uh, and there's a lot of controversy about that. But he um, is running for Senate and uh, passes away while he's still uh, in office. And uh, there's kind of a power struggle that breaks out. Elmer Benson, who's to the left substantially of of, uh, Olson, takes over. And uh, then within a couple years, uh, and partially because uh, Benson, although he's much more based and I like him a lot better, he does not have the same political shrewdness as as Olson. And in 1938, uh, the... FLP gets swept out of the governor's mansion. Um, a lot of that has to do with growing anti-war sentiment and uh, just the Republicans in Minnesota become kind of the anti-war party. And by 1940, one of the FLP senators, Henry Shipstead, defects to uh, the Republicans just to be an isolationist, say, I'm against this war. Um, you also have their other senator who dies in a plane crash. Uh, so they all of a sudden, within just a couple years, just have all their major elected officials gone. Um, so going into the 1940s, uh, they're a really rump party. Um, they're still doing better than Democrats, but the Republicans are winning all the elections. And this is in a progressive state. And so Roosevelt in 44 says, you guys got to figure this out. You, you have to come together and merge. Uh, and one of the people who presides over that is Hubert H. Humphrey. Now, on the FLP side, there is uh, Elmer Benson negotiates 
um, the the merger, as well as uh, Susie Stegerberg, who is uh, opposed to it. She she says this is a bad idea. We should not make peace with these guys. Uh, we're in for a, a bad time. Um, but they go ahead with it, and uh, for a long time, the or a couple of years, the FLP wing is really the dominant wing. Um, they have. Uh, Hubert Humphrey, who's the mayor of Minneapolis, uh, they refused to like congratulate him for doing a good job as mayor. There's like an official party letter that's sent and they like strike out some of the more enthusiastic language. Um, and then in in 46, uh, there or, or in 48, rather, he's really able to use a lot of the same tactics that leftists have used in the past to sweep the farmer laborers, especially the socialists, out of out of power, uh, out of party, you know, leadership positions. Um, there's a uh, anti-communist organization uh, that he's kind of appointed to by by Roosevelt, um, Americans for Democratic Action, and uh, they pass around these leaflets like, "Will the DFL Party of Minnesota be a clean, honest, decent, progressive party or a communist front organization?" So they're not shy about red baiting. Uh, and then ultimately, through the caucuses, they um, get all these people who have never been to a meeting before uh, to come in and vote their flank into office. Him and uh, Orville Freeman, who is this other very young sort of liberal uh, politico, uh, they form what's called the Diaper Brigade. And they're able to basically purge uh, the party radicals. And uh, unfortunately, that year, um, the, one of the big hot button um, disputes is over the presidential nomination. Uh, Truman is running for the first time. Um, and against him is uh, Wallace. And so the farmer labor wing of the, of the party wants to endorse Wallace, and, but Humphrey controls all the votes now. So they go to mm. Truman and then Benson, former governor, kind of takes his uh, gang and they go to Minneapolis and they have their own kind of symbolic convention where they nominate uh, Wallace and then he becomes Wallace's campaign manager. And sadly, the uh, Progressive Party, kind of its its third iteration at that point, really doesn't go anywhere. Man, that's fascinating. Um, so, and yeah, a similar sort of dynamic happens with uh, the Nonpartisan League and, you know, the depressing, the, the sort of, it becomes more of a, I mean, the radicalism is entirely stripped out over the de next few decades to the point yeah. where it, it becomes like we started at the top, just some letters you see on voting day. Um, I'm curious, you know, Minnesota has done some really good things in the most recent legislative session. Um, how ripe do you think this is for any kind of resurgence? Like, I, you know, I, I feel like it, what's wild to me is how similar a lot of the debates seem, you know, like the debates about should we merge with the Democratic Party? Like, you could imagine similar factions breaking out. I mean, I, you can absolutely see, it, like, it's it's just obvious what that would happen today and on similar sort of, like, concerns. Uh, and I'm just curious, like, what needs to happen? Because, and another thing, like, that Hormel strike where they're talking about, you know, um, let's pass around the hat. It reminds me of Starbucks workers saying, you know, mm -hmm. like, we, we're literally, like, you're going to fire me for, like, taking out of, like, the, the expired food thing or something like that. But anyway, uh, yeah, how ripe are we for that? Yeah. Uh, well, I think, you know, it, speaking of the, the parallels with, with today and back then, another thing uh, that really was 
reminiscent of today is the issue of uh, elected discipline, which was a, a big problem back then, too. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something we're always contending with now on the left is like, oh, this person betrayed us. So I guess this whole thing is all for naught. Uh, and a lot of people use that as a reason to not engage with the, the Democratic Party. But if you look at even pre-merger, there were uh, people like Shipstead and, and others who just, especially people who are elected and go to Washington, they kind of end up, you know, they're, they're very hard to, to control from a, a party position. It's just, a, yeah. it's a really hard thing to do is to keep all your ducks in a row. Um, but it is, I think, important to have like a core uh of you know cadre who have a, a platform that's deliberated democratically you have processes to uh discipline members and electeds if need be um and i think uh today if you look at minnesota um it's it's part of the left of of where we live in new york uh, in terms of the right. things they're passing um there are uh just education funding bills that are, are getting passed, um, trans rights, they're not shy about supporting. Uh, and if even in uh, on, on the local level in Minneapolis, the uh, DSA there has really been able to uh, take control of the endorsement process, which I think is an interesting uh, phenomenon um, that I'm, I'm really curious about because that's one of the the debates we're having in DSA is like, to what extent do we actually want to take over this party machinery? And what they've been able to do there is get uh, party endorsements for DSA candidates ahead of uh, the primaries. Recently, that ended up um, resulting in some some violence, actually. The uh, supporters of a uh, city council candidate who was primarying a, a DSA member, uh, they had, they swage and were like, you know, the cops, all kinds of like that the the key here though is a lot are up against it so i think when you have a strong left-wing poll that moves the rest of the party to the left and even with humphrey as we mentioned that it, in that at that 48 uh national democratic convention he goes there and he says uh i want to be a civil rights party um i don't want to be a states rights party i want to be a human rights party um which is a very ballsy thing. You know, I have to give him some respect. That's a ballsy thing to do in 1948 when you mm -hmm. have a segregationist Democratic Party. Uh, and he's also in favor of, the, of a full employment bill when he's senator and vice president. So I think that the fact that you have that left wing core there will pull um, some of those, you know, liberals and uh, ballyhoo artists, as, as Elmer Benson called Humphrey, uh, in, in a good direction. But it also has limits. And we're seeing that today. In Minnesota, because you know you have the uh, Uber legislation, which really would have been a very radical step forward, and uh, Governor Tim Walz, who signed a lot of other good stuff, was not able to sign that. He had to veto that because there's just a limit to liberalism um, right. that we have to be cognizant of. Yeah, and I think what's uh, what I find inspiring about it is. The fact that so many of these organizers, the initial people on the ground were like, they're ideologically socialist, right? And not getting initial traction, like Henry Martinson, who I'm going to be talking about, was a uh, editor of a magazine for years, uh, for a few years, like, and then ultimately finding a way to, you know, uh, bring that to the people and make a dent. It wasn't a revolution uh, like a lot of the people wanted, yeah. um, but it was a huge dent um, yeah. that had a massive impact. And yeah, uh, 
Uh, Anders, I appreciate it so much. Uh, how you Hubert H. Humphrey purged the DFL of socialists. Um, where should people follow uh, your work besides that? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Anders Lee here. And the podcast is, is Pod Damn America. And I'll have some, so actually some more podcasting news soon in the works. So uh, keep an eye on that. Exciting. Thanks, Anders. Appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Likewise. All right, folks. Uh, yeah, that was uh, awesome. I really recommend I, uh, Anders' piece and that documentary, which I have so um, uh, liberally borrowed from. Uh, uh, yeah, let me see if I can find this, if they have any uh, d- uh, credits. Oh, yeah, here we go. Credits. I- I'm going to read the credits for this because I feel bad not, uh, not signing it. Then we're going to over to the... Um, Fun half. This is a project team. Randy Croce. Oh, this is Randy himself. So Randy, who I linked to, uh, this his YouTube page only has 42 subscribers. Go give him a sub. I, I thought he uploaded that from somewhere, but this guy made this great documentary here. I, I, um, yeah, uh, check that out. Um, should we... Thanks for uh, I I noticed we got a raid. I think that was the surfs. Uh shout out uh everybody. Um I am going to uh head to the post game now. Uh I sh- I'll try to be back very quick and we'll run through those uh documentaries. I don't know if I'll be able to get to calls, but I will engage with uh the chats and we will be live on Twitch uh as well. I'll keep it live uh to everybody um uh as well. Uh just cuz David's not here, I need company. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I really appreciate, uh, Anders, uh, uh, let me just check to make sure we're all good here. All right. And, uh, yeah, we will be back. Uh, I'll be back live in about 10 minutes. I don't want to lose all the Twitch people, but you know, I also need to eat a sandwich. Um, uh, so, uh, I'll see you guys in a little bit here.